Let me, uh, let me pray for us real quick. <clears throat> God, we, uh, we just thank you for life and even just vocational prayer and just jobs. That this crazy and wild thing that we, what we do with our hands, our brains, is uh, absolutely integrated with your kingdom. And so that is it's just so encouraging to hear that, the work. And uh, we just bless that. And may you just continue to work in us now. Be with me. Allow me just to, to depend on your spirit. It's not about me. May I decrease and you increase. Amen. So I'm totally going to abuse the mic too. I have some cool special visitors here. My family is here. My mom. Go and raise your hands. So Mama and Papa Loman are here Exciting time for the Loman clan. My sister, which is right in between them, Becca, is getting married in five weeks from today. <laughs> Best part about it, they had a bridal shower yesterday. Obviously, I wasn't there, but I inherited some of the leftover food. So I think there's a couple more of those bridal showers coming, and I'm like, yes, more food for me. I'm poor. <clears throat> it's the truth. <clears throat> so... Minor confession. We, we live in L.A. We love beautiful, sophisticated, nice things. But I just don't get the typical American fascination with nice cars. What do I mean? You could put a shiny Benz in front of me, and it's not going to do much. Could be, I don't know, Lexus, Porsche. Someone's like, ah, oh, could it for me? Okay. <laughs> All right, don't listen, right? Uh, but yeah, you can put anything in front of me, you know, for you environmentally friendly people. You could be a Prius. I don't know. But it's, it's not going to move me that much. Like all I need and want a car for is to get me from point A to point B. I'm a happy man. So I drive a, a 10-year-old Toyota Corolla that still has the old manual locks and windows on it. So when someone gets out of my car, I have to lean over the front seat to lock the door myself, or I have to ask them. I don't usually do that because that's a little bit more embarrassing. <laughs> I, that's all I need a car for. But what I really don't get is the whole idea of restoring cars. <laughs> know a couple people that restored cars, and it just seems like it takes money, time, energy to go and, and to do this. And if you, if you know restore cars, I mean, it seems like they're always restoring it. Like it never comes to a point where the thing's completely done. It's like three years, five years, seven years, and it's still there. Each part is like super expensive because it's of some specialized sort. But the big thing is, it just goes on forever. <laughs> Finally, when the car is restored, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, it, it seems like it just sits in their garage. <laughs> Maybe it goes to a showroom. And I'm like, people, cars are meant to, to be driven, to hit the road, not just sit somewhere. Like, that, that's the whole point of a car and transportation. But then something hit me. We were kind of mapping out this series on the church. And God was kind of like, Mark, that's exactly, actually very much how you think of and treat church. Yeah, I need to be restored. I, I'm a desperately, desperately broken person. Nothing but the blood of Jesus that redeems me, that restores me. But then I just want to leave it 
at that. Just go park in my own little garage. Maybe you go to a showroom. But that's it. There we go. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right, there we go. So we're actually ending our series today on the church. And so we've gone through the whole narrative of scripture and we've seen these images of the church as a body, as a temple, as a family, as a bride. It, it, It just seems like God is kind of equipping us for something bigger in this season. Kind of, eh, let's, let's go out of our, our comfort zone a little bit. So quick plug in, after this Sunday, like I said, we're, we're ending the series on the church today. Next Sunday, we're going to go into just a, a series on prayer, just to kind of really equip us further, but to bring this intimate, deep focus uh, on Jesus, on his death and resurrection as we approach kind of the church calendar of, of Palm Sunday, of Resurrection Sunday. And if you look at Jesus, kind of the last two years of his life, in his ministry in the Gospels, I mean, he spent some time in some pretty intentional, agonizing prayer. Uh, it's, it almost just kind of seems right for us to, to go into that season of prayer as we, as we head into April. So that's, that's where we're going, that's where we're headed. But to kind of provide a, a summary, a bookend for this series on the church, kind of want us to, to step back and kind of ask these big meta-narrative questions. Who makes up the church? Why do we exist? Like, what's, what's really going on here? And so we're going to look this morning at, at this, this notion of the church as a redeemed community. And redeem, redemption, I mean, kind of old words, what, what do they really mean? Really, it's, it's this idea that God is kind of repurchased, restored, fixed, and transformed by people for himself, releasing them from all their slavery to everything that kind of holds us back to sin, to evil. So that, that's what I mean by, by redeemed. And to kind of go back to this restored car illustration, God, I mean, we're all kind of like his restored cars, and he has beautifully restored us. And it's an ongoing process, right? We never come to the end. But he's far, far bigger than your typical car restore. And this is kind of where the analogy breaks down because God doesn't want to leave us in our own little garage, our own little showroom. What do I mean? If you got your Bibles with you, and I think Bill and Nellie are going to come forward and hand out Bibles. I love what Nellie's done. Like I'm old school too. I want a physical Bible in my hand. So if you don't want to use your smartphone, iPad, or look up at the screens, they're going to pass them out. Just raise your hand and they will go and deliver them to you. So the book of Genesis will be in chapter 12. Literally all that word means, is it's kind of like the, the book of beginnings, the book of, of generations, if you will. And again, I want us to step back, like let's get this panoramic, this bird's eye view of the very inception and origin of the church. And I, I think we'll start to get, see this, this running strand that God kind of set in motion with, with the call of Abram, with the start of his church and it's then played out all throughout Scripture, down to the life of Jesus, and then even with us as, as Basileans here in the 21st century. So Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, I will read it out loud for us. All right, Genesis 12, verses 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house 
to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Listen to this. And in you, or through you, or by you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Usually, I think we think of the church as starting in the book of Acts, right? The day of Pentecost. And in some sense, that's, that's true. But kind of theologically speaking, the origins of the church actually start right here in Genesis 12 with the call of Abram. And later on, if I call him Abraham, it's because he, he changes his name a couple of chapters from now. But Abram, Abraham, same person. This is when God first calls a people for himself. And you can define the church very loosely as just simply the people of God, God's people. So this is where it starts. But is this just kind of some like random, sporadic thing that God does? Oh yeah, I'm just going to call this guy named Abram, make a great nation out of him, so on, so on. Is, is the author writing about Abram here just kind of as a, a mere example maybe? Or... Is the call of Abram and the dawn of the church God's solution to a cosmic problem? God's solution to a cosmic problem. If if you look at Genesis, you can kind of almost divide the book right in half. Not, Not at the halfway point, but right in between chapters 11 and chapters 12. There's a huge kind of turning point in this book, the first, chap- the first 11 chapters of Genesis, particularly from chapters 3 to chapters 11, is nothing but a story of curses. The world is chaotic. It's snowballed into utter evil. And things aren't looking too good. They're actually pretty bleak. And of course, I mean, churched or unchurched, you probably know the first two chapters of Genesis. It's this garden paradise, this blissful existence God has blessed everything. He's blessed the animals. He's blessed Adam and Eve. He's blessed his creation. And then chapter three hits, Adam and Eve, they eat the forbidden fruit, and the earth is cursed. Our relationship with God, our relationship with others, and our relationship with the earth, not good. Cain and Abel, they're kids. Cain murders his brother Abel, bringing even more curses. Then comes Noah, whom we'll soon know as, as Russell Crowe. Uh, but Noah and his family, they're the only ones saved from an even larger curse. Tower of Babel, chapter 11. Humankind gets this funny idea that they can be like God, so they build these tall buildings, and God says, nah, not so fast. I'm going to scatter you. Even more curses. So Genesis 3, chapter 11, nothing but a bleak picture of curses. Humanity has gone against God And it's not looking good. So the question is, what's God going to do about this? Is he going to be kind of like some like comic superhero and just like zap everything into existence, make everything just great in the snap of a finger? I mean, he totally could do that. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. Nope. (laughs) Calls an old man named Abram and says, hey, I'm actually going to bless you. A nation is going to come from you. And through that nation, 
I'm going to bless every single family of the earth. I'm going to reverse the curses. I'm going to bring blessing to which once was my good creation that's been spoiled. I think that's what's going on there. And so there's this big page turn at chapter 12. Who's Abram? Well, we know from a book called Joshua, chapter 24, which is a couple of books after Genesis, that Abram actually comes from this pagan family. Like, he's not this, like, holy, get-it-together person. In that culture, you, you probably followed your father, and so more than likely, not 100%, but more than likely, he was a pagan as well, worshiped other gods. This is the man that God calls. Not only is he pagan, but his family is utterly hopeless. A couple of verses before Genesis 12:1, at the end of chapter 11, little small phrase, you probably wouldn't even notice it if you read it, but it's there on purpose. And it says, Sarah, Abraham's wife, is barren. She can't conceive. In that culture, big, dishonorable, cultural taboo. I mean, your future was wrapped up in your kids. So they're, they're broken, they're not a holy people, and they're hopeless. God says, let me bless you. Get a nation to come through you. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this is the messy, mysterious way that God puts in his plan to begin to redeem his creation. But it isn't just for this family. Or even, it's not even just for Israel, the, the nation that's going to emerge from them, which we'll dig into here. But the phrase at the end of verse 2, God says, I'm going to bless you. And then there's this imperative in the original Hebrew language which this, this text was originally written in. And an imperative is kind of, it's like a command. It's like, go do this. And the, the imperative at the end of verse 2 is, be a blessing. Because, verse 3, because through blessing you, again, I know I've said it a lot, but through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. A.K.A. God's redemption, putting the world to rights, is starting and is, will go forth through this couple. If you're like me, I mean, I, I kind of think about this. This is, like, pretty counterintuitive. I, not a plan I think God would, like, do. You can almost, like, picture the angels, like, looking down on the scene, kind of, like, scratching their heads, like, wait, you're, you're calling this couple barren, hopeless, pagans. You're going to bring a nation from them, and that's how you're going to get this thing back on track? You're crazy. Like, aren't, aren't humans, like, the, aren't those the very creatures that have gotten this whole world in a mess in the first place? God's like, yep, that's what I'm doing. This is the start of the church. The people of God start with Abram and his wife, Sarah. God's solution to a cosmic problem. So sure enough, from Abram, names later changed to Abraham, comes forth the, the nation of Israel. The same paradigm is written into Israel's very law codes. So for instance, in Deuteronomy 15, they kind of outlined how they're supposed to deal with slaves. 
and they have a pretty countercultural way of dealing with slaves. So we'll, we'll real quick look at, at Deuteronomy 15, three verses, I'll read it for us. Deuteronomy is like three, four books after Genesis. Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 through 15. But if your brother, a Hebrew, Hebrew man or Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God has redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. We don't have the time to kind of like dig into this, this text in any depth, which it, it should be. But the main point here is that Israel has been set free from their slavery in Egypt. And God says, precisely because of that, I want you to do the same to others. You were redeemed. You were restored. So pass that on to others. Blessed to be a blessing. And so this whole paradigm of the way kind of God's people work, the reason why God restored them, and then what he wants to do through them continues on from Abram, and now it's in Israel, and it's down to their very law codes with how they should treat slaves. And by the way, I mean, this is kind of as a side note, slavery was assumed and accepted in the ancient world. Like, this was countercultural stuff. Like, you release your slaves every seven years, and not only do you release them, but you actually, you're going to send them out with food and resources. Crazy stuff. To my knowledge, Israel is actually one of the only nations that actually had that uh, in their law code. So this stuff was, it, it changed them. All right, so we got, we got one more piece of the puzzle. If, if you fast forward a couple hundred years from Israel, and we go down to the times of the New Testament with Jesus one of the, the earliest writers of the Christian faith we have is this guy named Paul. And Paul probably wrote about three quarters of our New Testament. And he's writing to these, these communities scattered throughout Galatia, this, this old city in the, the ancient world. And he writes this, this letter. And Paul is actually working in the same narrative, the same story of Abram and Israel and this thing of you're blessed, you're restored to be a blessing, <laughs> This is, this is the story that he's wrapped up in. And so he, he writes a letter to them, and he says this, this and this will be our, our last text. Galatians 3, starting at verse 7. Galatians at like very kind of the back end of, of your Bibles. He says this, Know then, that is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Gentiles are just non-Jews, so most of us in this room would probably be Gentiles. Justified the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And Paul actually quotes Genesis 12-3 exactly there in that, that phrase, Basically, what he's saying 
And, and kind of in some ways, just piggybacking on what Bill said a couple weeks ago as, as the church as Israel. Because Israel falls within Abram. That's where they emerged. In short, Paul's just basically saying this. If you have faith in Jesus, you are part of the family of Abraham. Meaning, you're included in that original blessing all the way back to Genesis 12. But if if we follow this closely, there's, there's a crazy implication of this. If we're included in the family and the blessing of Abram through faith in Christ and faith only, right? We're not justified by anything we do, but it's just faith. Then we also inherit Abram's call to be a blessing. We're redeemed to live redemptively, blessed to bless others. So just as Abram and then Israel, just as they received God's grace and blessing and his redemption, and then they were, they were kind of commissioned to go do the same for others, that's the very heritage that we find ourselves in. Anybody here ever seen the movie Machine Gun Preacher? Show of hands. All right, we've got some people, not too many. Actually, I, I, think, I think we watched it at our men's retreat like six, seven months ago. Got some laughs out of that. We had a hard time, I think, getting it to finally work. <laughs> but uh, it, it's based on a true story. If you don't know the story, maybe you want to like close your ears because I'm totally going to like spoil the, the plot here. But the, the guy in real life, his name is Sam, and Gerard Butler plays him in the movie. Gerard Butler is kind of this like tough guy, drug-dealing, alcoholic biker from Pennsylvania. He, he gets released from prison and goes home to his wife. I think he has a little daughter. Three days later, he almost murders someone. Like, just his life's still a mess. He hasn't really learned much from being in prison. And then he encounters Jesus. Has this, like, crazy radical conversion and transformation and if you know the story, then you know that he ends up in Africa and Sudan rescuing and freeing a bunch of children who are enslaved to be soldiers and kill other people. I mean, it's, it's quite the story, and it is like the story of redemption. And I, I know there's kind of some criticism, some debate in real life, but kind of how Sam carried this out in Sudan. Don't want to get into that, not the point of bringing it up. But, but what I want to bring attention to is that I I think this hits on something that we instinctively know in our bones as as humans. What if Sam or Gerard Butler in the movie, crazy radical encounter with Jesus, and then afterwards, eh, life goes back to normal. Yeah, it doesn't kill anyone else, not an alcoholic anymore, doesn't sell drugs anymore, but that's it. I think we'd kind of be expecting like a little bit more. I mean, it'd be like unclimactic. I mean, it's just like, what's, what's going on here? This is kind of trivial. This is off. We would just naturally be wanting more. I mean, he experienced such a crazy transformation that it would all kind of only seem fitting for God then to just transform a bunch of other people through him. And that's actually what happens. 
there's a risk in kind of bringing this story up because, I, I mean, it's very much kind of this utopian, <laughs> dreamlike story, right? I don't think much of us can relate to Sam or Gerard Butler. I mean, I'm not a, a tough guy, <laughs> drug-dealing, alcoholic, biker. Like, I'm not even that cool. I, I couldn't pull that off, much less I, I'm not in Africa saving children's lives. But it gets at the kind of the inner dynamics of grace, of redemption, that by receiving grace, by being redeemed, we naturally kind of become the agent of it to others. We just kind of know that in our, our bones a little bit. It, it's super easy for a message like this to kind of just go to like the go do it part. <laughs> like that's me, I am a, a human doer, not a human being. Uh, and I shared about a month and a half ago that that was exactly the thing that God's been teaching me. <laughs> Mark, lay low. Like you need to just kind of marinate in the gospel. Just stop, receive. And so it's, it's kind of counterintuitive, but if, if, if we went to the, just the, the go do it part for the church, I actually think we get it backwards. Because the church is first of all, a redeemed community. We receive God's grace, his blessing, his redemption. That's who we are. Like we are a broken, non-holy people. (laughs) So the first thing is kind of, we just need to receive. And so if, if, if you look at these texts in Genesis 12 and Deuteronomy 15, the first thing that God does with Abram is that he blesses him. He sheds his grace on him, a pagan, hopeless family. And then, then after that, it's be a blessing. Because in and through you, I'm going to bless others. Israel, I've redeemed you from slavery. I've blessed you. And then, because of that, go and pass that on. Go and do that to others. This is, this is our heritage. Like, we're, we're a redeemed community. We receive first. That's, that's what the church is. There, there's a well-known quote, maybe you've, you've heard it before, that the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And the gospel, the, the blessing of all people, as, as Paul describes it in Galatians 3, is not just something new for like, people who've just accepted Christ. As though, like, eh, if, if I became a follower of Jesus 10 years ago, I can, I'm kind of past that. I can, I can move on in my spiritual journey. No, no. The church can never forget the story of redemption and the reality of God's unmeritable grace. We don't go tired of it. We don't even move on from it. It's just kind of this like constant daily reality that we can't leave. If you're like me, my heart grows numb to that. It's easy for me to forget that, to kind of leave that. And that's actually, I think, kind of the very thing that God's been teaching me. Mark, you're in need of redemption, big time. Like you're a broken person. Story of redemption, story of God's blessing, the story of God's grace. 
And so I need to be continuously reminded that I am more broken than I know, but more loved than I can imagine in Jesus. So if, if you're with us today, follower of Christ of, or not, and you just kind of find yourself in these cycles of addiction that you can't get out of, maybe someone's like left, uh, they've hurt you, and th- there's some deep scars left on you. You're facing mounting anxiety or depression. I don't know, maybe you're going after things to find like ultimate fulfillment in relationships, success. But you know at the end of the day, like, eh, that's, that's not really going to fulfill you. The church is where you belong. Not, not because we're anything. <laughs> I got nothing to offer. But because our God is in the business of redeeming, of restoring, and offering his grace to you. This is kind of the, the identity, the existence of the church. And th- this hints at, I think, kind of the, the other side of, of God's life-giving grace. We don't hoard it. Because if you really experience grace, you'll find it kind of just naturally going out of you then. We, if we really experience grace, it transforms us into gracious people. The church is a, is a community of people called and chosen since the time of Abram to be a vehicle of God's blessing to the earth. There's, a, there's an Old Testament scholar named John Walton. He's done a lot of work in, in Genesis and in, in writing about the call of Abram in Genesis 12 and the start of the church. He gives this like super simple sentence, uh, but I, I found it incredibly profound. And he, he says this, we need to go beyond being people who are saved by grace to people who are characterized by grace. And, and so it's kind of an ancient metaphor or illustration, but it would have been in the thought world of, of the recipients of, of Genesis. Like the church isn't like a cistern of grace, a, a cistern if you don't know what they are, I mean, it's kind of this like huge container that stores and collects usually rainwater, but it could just be regular water. And it just collects it. So we do store and collect grace, but we aren't just a cistern of grace. Instead, we're kind of like, a, like an aqueduct. And that's just a weird word. Like, I don't know if I'm saying that right, aqueduct. But if, if, if you know what, what an aqueduct is, it's usually like a bridge. I should have put pictures of it up, and it has holes in it. And so water goes in it, it collects water, and then that water's dished out and dispersed to various other places. So the church is like an aqueduct of grace. We receive it, but then it kind of just naturally gets passed on, or at least it should. I love, I think a perfect example of this is kind of what Linnea and now Angela are doing with vocational prayer. Like this, this idea that we, we ask God, like how can we be instruments of your kingdom at our jobs, in our vocations, our work projects, with our colleagues? Like that's, that's actually the, the church, like being the church outside of, of, of this building, right? Educators, HR managers, lawyers, artists, film editors. How can we be an agent and a dispenser 
of God's grace and blessing where we work. What about our, our neighborhoods, right? The, that, that kind of the, the single mom who's got three kids to herself and she barely has time to make dinner for her children. How can we be an agent of grace, a blessing? Very, this meeting place right here at Hope, right? We, we rent this room. How can we be a blessing and embody redemption to, to this community here at Hope? I mean, we could kind of dream up all the other ways that, that what God's calling us to. And so if, if I can invite the, the worship team back up, and they just kind of, they kind of strum some, some music in the background here. You know, a, a lot of us in this room, like, we're, we're millennials. And millennials, we are world transformers. Like, that's our language. That's our generation. We want to see change in our communities. But in order to even, like, begin to start transforming society, I, I think our hearts have to be transformed together from the inside out. You can't do it yourself. You'll get burnt out. Been there, done that. Can't kind of like climb up your, your moral bootstraps and energy, right? The identity and the purpose of the church since its inception to Abraham, to Israel, to us as Basileans today here in LA, 21st century, is that we're not perfect, and we never will be. And that's actually a good thing, because we're a redeemed people in need of redemption. <laughs> that's, that's who we are. It, it, we got to get that right first. But to, to go back to the, the restored car analogy, our God is far more in the business of redeeming, restoring us. And not just leaving us in some garage, some parking spot, in this fountain room. He's actually far bigger than that. And he's, he's blessed us with his grace to put us back on those crowded, cemented freeways that we all love here in L.A. To do what we were made to do to be the vehicles and the transportation of his grace and his blessing to every nook and cranny in L.A. Like this, this is the church. We're, we're redeemed to live redemptively. Our purpose comes from our identity. So let's just kind of sit in that. Just allow the, the Holy Spirit to to move and to have his way here. They'll play a little bit. And then we're actually gonna, it, it just seemed right in the series in the church as we end it, just to, to end with, with communion. So we'll just take a couple minutes here and then we'll, we'll kind of pass out communion and, and we'll go into that.